Welcome to the Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care podcast. Why does this topic matter? One person in the United States dies from a drug overdose every six minutes. We as healthcare providers must do better to treat addiction, prevent overdoses, and improve the lives of our patients and their families. This podcast is designed to provide you with simple and evidence-based information on substance use disorders that you can use to take better care of your patients on your next shift. Hello again, and welcome back to another episode of Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care. Dr. Casey Grover, happy to be back again today as your host. Today, we're going to tackle a topic that is often poorly understood, and that is harm reduction. As always, I want to keep this podcast evidence-based, so we'll be reviewing a paper for this episode to guide us through this topic. The first author of the paper is Mary Hawk. The title of the article is Harm Reduction Principles for Healthcare Settings, and it's published in Harm Reduction Journal in 2017. And with that, let's get started. The paper opens up with the usual background section, and this for me is the most important part of this topic. I always like to ask why we do the things that we do. So, what is harm reduction. The authors open this section with a definition, quote, harm reduction refers to interventions aimed at reducing the negative effects of health behaviors without necessarily extinguishing the problematic health behaviors completely or permanently. Let's take a minute to unpack that. So when they say we want to reduce the negative effects of health behaviors, that means we want to reduce how much a behavior hurts the patient. When they say, without necessarily extinguishing the problematic health behaviors completely or permanently, this means that we won't be stopping the problematic behavior. And this is where harm reduction gets controversial. Take injection drug use, for example. Proponents of harm reduction with injection drug use want to reduce the risks of injection drug use such as reducing the risk of HIV or skin and soft tissue infections. Critics of harm reduction with injection drug use believe that the goal should be to stop injection drug use and that harm reduction, since the goal is not to stop the behavior necessarily, only enables further use. The authors move on to provide some history of harm reduction. The modern harm reduction model began in the 1970s and 1980s in response to the spread of infectious diseases. Injection drug use and HIV transmission was a major motivator for harm reduction in clinicians taking care of injection drug users. And the authors, as I noted previously, acknowledge the controversy behind it and the contrast between harm reduction and traditional models for addiction treatment, such as Alcoholics Anonymous, which promote abstinence only. Harm reduction seems to be most thought of as an intervention for injection drug users through syringe exchange programs, but harm reduction can actually be used in many high-risk behaviors or disorders including tobacco use, eating disorders, domestic violence, and people who exchange sex for drugs, money, or goods. And believe it or not, you probably already do some harm reduction in your current practice. For example, Have you ever asked a person who smokes to cut down on the number of cigarettes they smoke daily? 
That's an example of harm reduction. You're reducing harm from cigarettes without completely extinguishing the behavior of smoking cigarettes. Now, you might be wondering, well, harm reduction sure sounds good, but does it actually work? The authors continue in this background section to highlight a few studies that show success. First, they highlight a systematic review from 2010 on syringe exchange programs in injection drug users, which demonstrated that syringe exchange programs were cost-effective in reducing the transmission of HIV. Second, a study from 2006 on syringe exchange programs in injection drug users increased access to medical and social support services for injection drug users. Third, a study from 2010 showed that safe injection facilities increased enrollment in treatment for substance use disorder and did not increase social disorder in the community. And fourth, a study from 2009 looked at Housing First programs. And Housing First programs are programs that provide people with substance use disorders housing first, then enroll them in substance use treatment. As an aside, most programs require people to get into treatment before offering housing, and getting into treatment can be hard when a person is homeless. This 2009 study found that Housing First programs reduced the cost of medical care and social services for patients with alcohol use disorder and also reduced the consumption of alcohol. And the authors actually cite more than these four, and there's a great reference section in this paper pointing out the efficacy of harm reduction. And this is where I think we can take home our first big point on harm reduction. Harm reduction is really about reducing the risks in the short term, say HIV from drug use, and setting the patient up for success in the long term for their harmful behavior to get treatment and ultimately stop the behavior. In those studies I just went through from this paper that highlighted the efficacy of harm reduction, three of them looked at getting people with substance use disorders into treatment and reducing their overall use. So when I think of harm reduction, I think of how can I reduce the harm this patient's behavior is doing them today while I work on a long-term treatment plan for them. The authors move on in this paper to talk about some of the general concepts of harm reduction when it comes to patients who use psychoactive substances, and we'll go through them now. First, targeting risks and harms to people who use substances, understanding the roots of these risks, and tailoring interventions to reduce them. Number two, acknowledging the significance of any positive change that people who use substances make in their lives. Three, accepting people who use drugs as they are and treating them with dignity and compassion. Four, protecting the human rights of people who use drugs. And five, maintaining transparency in decisions about interventions as well as their successes and failures. And these concepts all make sense for good patient care in general. Target what's hurting people. Give people kudos when they do good things. Don't judge people, just help them and protect the vulnerable. The authors pivot in this study from describing basic concepts and the history of harm reduction to their specific work on this topic. They wanted to take harm reduction to the next level by doing a literature review on harm reduction and then following this with interviews of patients and staff, 
including doctors, in an HIV clinic. They combined what they found in the literature with the content of their structured interviews with patients and staff to be able to generate a basic set of principles for harm reduction that could be broadly applied across the spectrum of healthcare. And we'll go through these and discuss each to help us understand how to frame harm reduction in our minds. Topic one was humanism. Basically, value and respect patients as people. We need to remember that people do harmful things for specific reasons and that the patient believes that the harmful behavior provides some benefit to them, such as alcohol to manage their anxiety or methamphetamines to stay awake at night to guard their homeless campsite. So what can you do in your practice to incorporate humanism? Well, number one, don't judge patients for what they do. Number two, understand patients may not agree with all of your recommendations. Topic number two is pragmatism. Health behaviors and the ability to change are affected by multiple societal and community norms and behaviors. These behaviors do not occur in isolation, and it's important to remember that when looking at how patients act. Now, what can you do to incorporate pragmatism into your practice? You can offer a range of supportive approaches to your patients. They may, due to their circumstances, such as homelessness, not be able to accept all of your offers or recommendations. As an example, your patient with opiate use disorder may not be ready for medication-assisted treatment, but at least they are willing to accept naloxone and a follow-up phone call from a social worker or substance use navigator. You've given them a range of options and they are choosing what they can practically accept. The third topic is individualism. Each person has her or his own needs and strengths and will need those considered when creating a plan of care. What can you do in your practice to incorporate individualism? Really, it's to get to know your patients. Find out what their needs and strengths are to be able to offer them what best fits them. And if you're like me and you're busy on shift and don't have time, ask for help from a social worker or a drug and alcohol counselor because they are wonderful at digging into these histories. The fourth topic is autonomy. Patients have the right to make their own choices about healthcare. What can you do in your practice to incorporate autonomy? Work on building the provider-patient relationship and consider using shared decision-making when making decisions with patients. Topic number five is incrementalism. Basically, any positive change is a step towards the ultimate goal of improving patients' health and significant positive changes may take years. What can you do in your practice to incorporate incrementalism? Well, the first is, is you can celebrate any positive change. Congratulate your patient for being willing to seek treatment with you or congratulate your patient on being willing to try medication-assisted treatment. And furthermore, realize that not everyone is in a position to make positive changes at all times. When patients are in decline or at a plateau in their progress towards successful treatment for their substance use disorder, get them support with social work, community programs, or drug and alcohol counselors so that when they are ready to move forward again, they are set up for success. And the last is topic number six, which is accountability 
without termination. Patients have the right to make harmful health decisions and we need to help them understand the consequences, but we should not terminate our relationship with them when they make bad choices. What can you do in your practice to incorporate accountability without termination? Well, it's pretty simple. Express your concerns and outline the consequences when patients make bad health choices but do not cut them off. Offer them whatever treatment and support they are willing to accept as cutting them off will only lead to more and worsening bad health choices and poorer health outcomes. And basically, kind of looking at these six themes that the researchers came up with, they're very similar to the general concepts we outlined above. Target what's hurting people, give people kudos when they do good things, and don't judge people, just help them. The authors move on in the discussion section and they make a point that I really like here. Quote, because most people engage in health behaviors unrelated to substance use that are harmful or suboptimal, harm reduction is appropriate for all patients and not just those who use illicit substances, end quote. Yes, this is huge. My diabetics often forget to take their medications or they enjoy high-carbohydrate sugary meals. My asthmatics often run out of their albuterol or continue to smoke. My endurance athletes with chronic repetitive injuries often refuse to rest. Yes, this is so true. Harm reduction skills help us to meet all patients with all conditions where they are and help us to focus on the goal of reducing short-term harm and setting patients up for long-term success. Now, you may be thinking at this point, okay, I get this whole harm reduction thing and it makes sense. But I'm worried about needle exchanges. That's a whole different can of worms. So let's dig into that topic specifically since it can be among the most controversial. And let me just frame my background in syringe exchange programs. I volunteered at a syringe exchange program on Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles as a medical student with a population predominantly using heroin. I volunteered at a syringe exchange program in West Hollywood in Los Angeles as a medical student with a population predominantly using meth. And I just started this summer working at our local syringe exchange program, seeing patients with opiate use disorder in a low barrier buprenorphine clinic. So I've been working at syringe exchange programs throughout my career. And just to clarify, I like the term syringe exchange more than needle exchange, given the stigma surrounding needles. So what do these programs look like and what actually do they do? Well, without access to a syringe exchange program, people using injection drugs run into two basic issues. First, they lack access to clean supplies. This increases the risk due to the reuse of syringes and needles of skin and soft tissue infections, HIV, and hepatitis C. Additionally, each time the needle is used, it becomes more dull and more brittle, increasing the risk of needles breaking off in the body. And second, there is lack of access to discard used supplies. This can result in needles and syringes being discarded in an unsafe fashion, whether it be in the trash and people can get poked through the trash bags or on the ground. And as I mentioned, it increases the risk of needle sticks incurred by other people. So the goal of syringe exchange programs at the highest level is to address these two issues. Now, 
what does our local syringe exchange program do so you can understand what an actual program looks like. They do a number of things and the people that run this syringe exchange program are fantastic and dedicated. They take back used syringes and needles to ensure safe disposal. They offer supplies to maintain the skin health of patients using injection drugs in the form of skin cleaning supplies, bandages, and over-the-counter antibiotic ointment to prevent and treat skin and soft tissue infections. They offer clean syringes and needles, as well as other supplies associated with injection drug use, such as clean cotton to draw the substance up into the syringe, to prevent the reuse of needles and the spread of bloodborne infection, such as HIV or hepatitis C. They offer social services, as in resources for transportation or housing. They offer referrals to screening and treatment for conditions associated with injection drug use, such as hepatitis C and HIV. Yes, our local syringe exchange program is screening for hepatitis C and getting people treatment, and they're doing the same with HIV. And our local syringe exchange program offers treatment for substance use disorders, including buprenorphine, and referrals to substance use treatment programs. So bottom line, syringe exchange programs work to reduce the short-term harms of substance use in their patients while setting up treatment plans for the long-term in their patients. They also ensure the safe disposal of sharps in our community. So for us as providers in the emergency department or in the acute care setting, what should we do with this information about syringe exchange programs? All of us clearly recognize the hazards of injection drug use. How many times have we seen or admitted patients with cellulitis or endocarditis from injection drug use? We should have information on our local syringe exchange programs for our patients and refer patients with injection drug use to these programs. If you have a patient with injection drug use that you are taking care of in the emergency department or in patient setting, Offering them treatment for their drug use and referring them to a syringe exchange program can reduce the likelihood that they will be back again and needing treatment for the same problem related to their injection drug use that you were treating them for. All right, that was a bit of a whirlwind tour on harm reduction, including the topic of syringe exchange programs. Let's wrap this up with some take-home points. Number one. I'm just going to read the definition because it's really succinct. Quote, harm reduction refers to interventions aimed at reducing the negative effects of health behaviors without necessarily extinguishing the problematic health behaviors completely or permanently, end quote. Number two, when I think of harm reduction, I think of how can I reduce the harm this patient's behavior is doing to them today while I work on a long-term treatment plan for them. Number three, the basic tenets of harm reduction are consistent with good patient care in general. Target what's hurting people. Give people kudos when they do good things. Don't judge people, just help them. And protect vulnerable patients. Four, harm reduction skills help us to meet all patients with all conditions where they are and help us to focus on the goal of reducing short-term harm and setting patients up for long-term success. Number five, syringe exchange programs are a valuable community resource 
to help an extremely high-risk and vulnerable patient population. When treating patients with injection drug use, make sure they have access to clean supplies and provide them with information about the local syringe exchange to help them get services and continued access to clean supplies. That wraps up this episode. I wanted to say thank you to everyone for listening and provide one final thought. The fact that we have syringe exchanges is a testament as to how hard it can be to treat substance use disorders. It would be so much easier if there were a quick and easy treatment for substance use disorder rather than having to reduce harm by providing clean needles, but there just isn't a magic bullet that treats substance use disorders quickly and easily. Substance use disorders are chronic and relapsing conditions that are difficult to treat. In my mind, harm reduction is a reflection of that. We must protect our patients from the dangers of their substance use disorder however we can while working on a long-term treatment plan. Thank you so much for what you do, and don't forget, treating substance use disorders saves lives.